0: Thanks for listening and sharing Our Body Politic. As you know, we're only a few months into this show. We are still evolving, still shaping it, and we need lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. And thank you. our body politic. I'm the creator and host Farai Chidea. We're talking with our public health experts about COVID vaccinations and diving deep into the minimum wage increase Congress is debating to ease the financial burden of the pandemic. The Biden Harris administration is grappling with how different members of the Democratic Party are staking out positions on a proposed increase to the minimum wage and on student loan forgiveness. Senator Elizabeth Warren has been a key voice advocating for policies that benefit lower- and middle-income Americans. She tells us how her positions are informed by her own experience growing up and how that compares with the struggles of working families now. Senator Warren, it is so great to have you with us. Oh, and I'm so glad to be here with you. So let's just jump right in with a bit of family history. You have uh, talked about your early life as being on, quote, the ragged edge of the middle class. And you were the first in your family to graduate from college, I understand. What do you mean by the ragged edge of the middle class?
1: You know, we were one of those families that so wanted to be middle class, wanted to see ourselves as middle class. But we were also one of those families that hit a lot of rough patches. And, you know, my mama was borrowing Money from my brother, David, who had two paper routes uh, so that she could buy milk to keep us through to make it to the end of the week. Uh, always counted out every nickel. Uh, I still remember she used to scrounge around for change so she could buy a dollar's worth of gas. It was a family that that worked hard, played by the rules, but we understood up close and personal that isn't always enough to make it in America.
0: Yeah, I certainly um, come from a background that is, is very similar in a lot of ways. Um, and there's a, an economist, Radhika Balakrishnan, who has talked about the idea, what is an economy for? So if, if she were posing you that question, what is an economy for, what would you say it is now and what should it be?
1: I'd say I what an economy should be for is to build opportunity it's it's a chance it's not it doesn't mean everybody's going to end up in exactly the same place but it is a chance that every child gets a chance that every person gets a chance i think that's how we we ought to have an economy that works like that but we don't and in fact it's not only that our economy works better for those at the top it's that that trend has been accelerating. You know, just going back, we were talking about family. After my daddy had a heart attack, my mom got a job at the Sears, minimum wage job, answering phones. Minimum wage job kept us alive. Mm-hmm. But here's the deal: when I was a little girl, a minimum wage job in America would support a family of three. It would cover the mortgage, the utilities, the food. We know this. Today, a minimum-wage full-time job in America will not keep a mama and a baby out of poverty. The idea that minimum wage was what got you at least in the kind of onto the ragged edge of the middle class, uh-uh, not anymore. Minimum wage, a mama and baby in poverty. Think of it another way. Uh who is supporting someone right now to work minimum wage at Walmart or at Amazon or any place where they're asking people to work minimum wage? And the answer is, a, a chunk of that is being supported by the taxpayers. In other words, Walmart or Amazon gets to pocket more profits. Mm. And the way they do it is they hire at minimum wage, knowing that it won't support a family. And that, in fact, the, the stories long circulated that Walmart actually, there were people who would just hand out uh, your application for SNAP benefits, for food, uh, for Medicaid. All of those are paid for by the taxpayers. We up the minimum wage, and that means taxpayers pay less, families are more economically secure, and Walmart has to actually pay a wage that puts money in people's pockets, enough that they can survive.
0: Let's turn to the question of student loan forgiveness. Um, President Biden was in a CNN town hall where he was asked about um, forgiveness at a $50,000 level. And he said directly, I will not make that happen. Um, What's your perspective on the issue and what you're championing? With about 43
1: million Americans today, who are shouldering about one and a half trillion dollars of student loan debt? These folks need relief. Um, about 40% of them don't have a college diploma. These are folks who tried, and God bless them, but life happens. You know, they had babies, somebody got sick, they lost a job, the commute was too hard, um, and they weren't able to finish. So they're trying to manage. Uh, student loan payment on what a high school graduate makes. And for people of color, for African Americans, the student loan debt problem is even worse. Uh, Black students have to borrow more money to go to school, borrow more money while they're in school, and have a harder time paying it when they get out of school. Same thing is also true for Latinx students. This is a racial justice issue, it is an economic justice issue, and it's a get-our-economy-going issue, because all of these young people who are struggling with student loan debt, that's money that they could put back into the economy, it's money they could use to buy homes, it's money they could use to start small businesses. This is a win-win-win if we cancel out. $50,000
0: of student loan debt. You mentioned that this is a racial justice issue. And uh, Heather McGee, the the author of The Sum of Us, is is going to come on our show at a later date. And she's essentially made an argument that basically um, when white Americans benefit from government policy, it's a lot easier to get passed than when a multiracial group of Americans do it. So you had, um, you know, a lot more support for educational costs when it was a much larger proportion of white Americans getting educated. Do you believe that race plays into the math in that way over educational debt? Look, the data are just unmistakable here.
1: Race has played into every system in America, in education, uh, in housing, in uh, wealth, in criminal justice. What's so important right now on student loan debt is that the president of the United States, by himself, not, you know, let's get people in Congress and so on, by himself, with the stroke of a pen, could close the black-white wealth gap among those with student loan debt by 25 points. Mm. That would just be historic.
0: And. You know, for my my last question, I just want to ask about where we go from here in terms of the responsibility of the finance sector. Um you propose the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. How do you view the role of something like uh, consumer protection and scrutiny of the financial industry as we, Hopefully one day exit the pandemic. There are a lot of people whose lives have been completely upended. There's been innumerable changes to how we work, where we work, um, and the entire structure of the labor economy. Um, What do you want to see happen in terms of giving people a shot at emerging from this hole?
1: Oh, that is a really terrific question to be looking ahead on this. Look, we're going to need multiple parts here. We're going to need a strong consumer agency so people aren't getting cheated as we come out of this on their various uh, financial products. We're also going to need to put some real money in so that when uh, the moratorium on foreclosures and evictions is lifted, people aren't just smacked with thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in past due rent or past due mortgage payments. Um, and the third part we've got to do is we've got to keep the focus on working families. You know, this recovery is, is often described as K-shaped, meaning half the recovered, like the top half of the K, the billionaires, have done Great. The 660 billionaires in America have made over a trillion dollars in additional profits over the last year. But the bottom half of the K, the one that slopes down, working families all across this nation, best estimate is unemployment rates are at about 20 percent. People are truly suffering, and it's going to get worse. So We really need to be pushing on the things that help build up our economy and create opportunity for everyone. Raising minimum wage, you bet. Universal child care so that mamas and daddies can go back to work and have child care, good child care, paid for. Universal pre-K so every one of our babies gets a real chance going forward. Universal technical school, two-year college, four-year college so that after President Biden canceled student loan debt, we don't just mire another generation in student loan debt. We need to keep our focus on opportunity, opportunity for working families, opportunity, not just for a handful at the top, but opportunity for everyone.
0: Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Like you, we've got plenty of questions about what's happening with the pandemic. And here is a big one. Say that I get fully vaccinated, both shots. What can I start doing differently, if anything? I put that question to Dr. Kavita Trivedi. She's an epidemiologist and Our Body Politic contributor. First off, Dr. Trivedi pointed out that the vaccines we have
2: available now are extremely effective. When you are vaccinated, that fully protects you from hospitalization due to COVID, death due to COVID, and severe disease from COVID. If you are vaccinated and you want to interact with someone else who is vaccinated, we think that is probably completely safe because you both are not likely to transmit the virus in significant amounts to each other and therefore then have a poor outcome from the disease and you're protected. So we think two vaccinated people can interact in pre-pandemic ways, indoors, without a mask, eating together, you know, those things we used to do uh, before.
0: Still, no vaccine is perfect and it's possible to get a mild or asymptomatic infection and pass it on to others who are not vaccinated, even if you've been vaccinated. Dr. Trevetti says you have to consider who's in your bubble.
2: I would say that two vaccinated people can be as close together as two spoons in a drawer, except for the scenario where one of the vaccinated people interacts in their bubble at home in their household with somebody who is not yet vaccinated and is at risk for a poor outcome from COVID-19. I think in that scenario, two vaccinated people could still interact with masks and with distancing.
0: Then there's another reason public health officials are saying you should still wear a mask in public.
2: When you're vaccinated, you don't know who else is vaccinated around you all the time. So when you interact with people in your community, at the grocery store, in a restaurant, they may or may not be vaccinated. And they may also still be interacting with other people that are vulnerable to a poor outcome from the infection. So this is the main reason why we still want people that are vaccinated to mask and distance.
0: I had lots more questions for Dr. Trevetti and thankfully she was game to answer them. Welcome Dr. Trevetti. Hi Fry, it's nice to be back. We just hit this tragic milestone and um, here's a clip of President Joe Biden from early in the week.
1: Today we mark a truly grim heartbreaking milestone. 500,071 dead.
0: So I want to take a minute Dr. Trevetti to just ask about the impact this has had not just on everyone but the healthcare system and healthcare workers themselves.
2: It's been really tough. I think healthcare professionals have been really disheartened with the number of people in our communities that have not heeded public health messaging around masking and distancing. Getting to this half a million mark feels hard because it really does feel like D-Day in, you know, in in our uh, our battle against this uh, virus.
0: There is some good news, which is that cases have been dropping fast. Um, Now, less than 65,000 cases per day compared to a quarter of a million at the beginning of January. First of all, can we reasonably expect this to last while these variants are coming in? Is this a lull, or is this something permanent?
2: no i I think that these this drop in cases is certainly um positive and gives brings a lot of hope. If we estimate that you know around one hundred and ten million people have been infected in the in the United States and we add to that around 44 million people who've been vaccinated to some extent, we are then talking about a substantial number of the population that has some immunity to the virus. I think also we are going into a season where we have less holidays, Mm. big holidays to be concerned about. And um, maybe also it's having more adherence to public health recommendations and public health measures. Um, You know, in 2021, we have seen a more consistent message from the federal government. We have seen politicians that are wearing masks in public, even after they're vaccinated. So, so having a consistent message may may translate into the public better adhering to these, these public health measures that we have been advocating for since the beginning of the pandemic. So I do think there is a lot of hope in looking at these numbers and seeing them go down. We still are not at, you know, levels that we were at last summer yet, um, but we, we do expect things to continue to move in this direction.
0: So, Dr. Trevetti, let's end on this question of kids and vaccines. Um, Right now, children under 16 aren't approved to get vaccinated and that's 20% of the population. So um, any further thoughts on on how to treat uh, the kids who will not have the protection of the vaccine rollout?
2: So um, we have two trials that are ongoing. With children between the ages of 12 and 17, in the case of the Moderna vaccine, and 12 and and 15, in the case of the Pfizer vaccine, um, and uh, we will likely see data from that from from those trials in you know in three to six months. I think because we're thinking of, we're talking about children, there is going to be more scrutiny on this data compared to the adult uh, efficacy trials. I think in the meantime, we are still able to attain herd immunity with um, without children, right? Without the twenty percent, if we're talking about between fifty and seventy percent of the U.S. population needing to be vaccinated or getting the infection and, and then being immune, you know, we still think that we can achieve that without children. And I think the other point is, children are much better at. At behavioral interventions than adults are. Children are much better at wearing masks. And we also think that they do this better in schools. And so this leads into like why we want to start opening up schools. They're so good at teaching life skills. I mean, that's what that's what schools do. And so we want them to do that in the context of the pandemic in order to, to keep children safer, even outside of the uh, outside of a vaccine.
0: Well, Dr. Trevetti, great to have you back.
2: It's a pleasure always to talk to you.
0: That was Dr. Kavita Trevetti, Our Body Politics health contributor. She's going to help us continue to keep you updated on how to stay safe during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here at Our Body Politic, we use the platform Speak to ask listeners like you to call in and share your thoughts with us. The last few weeks, we've been asking what you've learned about yourself in the pandemic. And this listener learned they have valuable leadership skills.
2: I
1: work at a university in a housing setting. And so... The last year has brought a lot of ups and downs, and I was quickly pulled into discussions and meetings and conversations where I was able to make decisions, inform folks, lead out on specific items. I take pride in knowing that there were things I tangibly did to make their experience better.
0: Thank you for calling in and writing. This week, we are asking a new question. If you had one hour to talk about one topic affecting your local community with the U.S. Senator for your state, what would you talk about and why? To tell us what you think, you can call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to OurBodyPolitic.show and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. Intimate partner violence or domestic violence impacts one in four women in her lifetime. Recently, celebrities like Evan Rachel Wood and FKA Twigs have gone public with the ways that they were trapped in abusive relationships. Film producer and author Tanya Selvarotnam set out to explore her own story in her new book, Assume Nothing, A Story of Intimate Violence. In the memoir, Selvarotnam recounts the abuse she suffered at the hands of then-New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman while they were dating in 2016 and 2017. Then in 2018, Selvarotnam and three other women came forward in a New Yorker article about Schneiderman's patterns of abuse. In a statement to the New Yorker at the time, Schneiderman denied assaulting anyone. He said he'd engaged in role-playing and other consensual sexual activity in intimate relationships. Then he resigned as New York Attorney General just three hours after the investigation was published. Later, he apologized to Selvaratnam and others who came forward and said that he'd spent time in a rehab facility. The story Selvarotnum tells is one of power structures and a public-facing figure who was very different behind closed doors. But it's also a universal story for anyone who has experienced abuse or who has supported someone who has. Tanya, thank you for coming on Our Body Politic.
3: Thank you, Farai.
0: So in this book, you really are so vulnerable about your own journey with intimate violence. Um, What did it take for you to tell this story? How did you come to realize that this was a task you could take on? Because a lot of people never talk about um, situations like the one you lived through.
3: I was inspired to write the book because I had so many people friends and strangers who reached out to me after my story of abuse became public in 2018 in the New Yorker magazine. And they were sharing their own stories of abuse. And in the case of friends, some of them I've known for decades, but we had never talked about these experiences with each other. And I wrote the book in part to take the shame and the stigma out of being a victim and a survivor. I also wrote my way out of the darkness. Mm.
0: Well, we are both storytellers and we have known each other, you know, for 30 years now. How do you make sense now from the vantage point of where you are of what you went through? And, you know, um, you've talked about the insidious way that women end up in, in cycles of abuse.
3: Well, I was shocked when I got out of the abusive relationship, I wasn't prepared for my path to intersect with an abuser. I wasn't prepared for the grooming, gaslighting, and manipulation. And I walked the reader through the stages that I went through to get into an abusive relationship so that they can understand those stages and spot them in their own lives. But it also helped me understand why I didn't leave, Mm -hmm. you know, victims are often asked, why didn't you leave? And the people who ask them those questions are criticized. But for me, it was important to answer that question for myself so that I could excavate the fractures that I needed to heal. And those fractures go back to high school. You know, millions of people experience abuse before they turn 18, So my hope is that high school students read this book.
0: Let's go back into the hard parts and and then back out into the light. Um, You have a line here. Eric was so skilled at abusing me that I thought I was responsible for it. What do you mean by that line?
3: When we first met, which was in 2016 at the Democratic National Convention, it started like a fairy tale. It felt too good to be true that this powerful, charismatic man was paying a lot of attention to me, that we had overlapping interests. We both were uh, advocates of progressive causes. Uh, He was publicly known as a feminist. And we both had an interest in meditation and spirituality. So when he first slapped me, it happened in the flash of an eye. It felt like he was testing me. But then over time, the slaps got harder and were accompanied by demands in the sexual context. Talking about these things, it's so embarrassing, but I also feel that it's important to talk about them because these micro details are ones that I have discovered through the people who have reached out to me, others do I identify with. And I, I, I want to take this shame and the stigma about having experienced these because I feel a real strength about knowing that I will never tolerate abuse again in any context. As stinging as the physical violence was the verbal abuse, the coercive control, watching what I ate, how I dressed, how I did my hair, gradually he broke me down. And in Eric Schneiderman's case, he customized the abuse for his victims. So I was the only dark-skinned woman of the girlfriends who participated in the New Yorker story and of the women who reached out to me after the New Yorker story who had also been abused by him, and I was not aware of them before. I was the only one who was not white. And in the abuse he inflicted on me, he wanted me to call him master and I was his slave. And he had fantasies about me being a brown girl that he found far away to bring back home. I mean, it it was flat out racist. And that was equally shocking to me that, you know, he was a publicly facing, a feminist and progressive, but private facing, he abused me. So
0: to know that all of this is happening with. A man who is at the time the New York State Attorney General and who has access to all these systems of power, to the political party he belongs to, to law enforcement, to the courts. What did it take for you to want to come forward with this as you did?
3: It made my options dwindle. All roads led to him because he was the top law enforcement officer in. New York State. I had been scared for my physical safety. I was also scared about my career and reputation. I had no intention of coming forward when I first uh, was out of the relationship, which was in early October of 2017. But very shortly after that is when the Me Too movement began. And I felt these waves crash around me when those Harvey Weinstein stories broke. And I decided that the best route for me to take would be investigative journalism.
0: It strikes me, you know, and this is, this is kind of me backing into our last question. It strikes me that having people around you who keep it real has to be harder than ever during the pandemic mm-hmm. for Victims of intimate violence, you know. There, I've I've really been looking at some of the um, the data, which it's probably in and of itself not telling the whole story, and we we may never get the whole story of how the pandemic has affected that. But what message, if there's someone who happens to be listening to the show who is either in a state of knowing that they are a victim of intimate violence or worrying if what they are going through is qualifying it. What do you say to that person? Take us out with that.
3: You're not alone. You're not crazy. And there are organizations that can help you. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to share your story. You are one of millions. We are a large community of victims and survivors. So many people get stuck in abusive relationships because they don't have the resources, financial or otherwise, to get out. And so my message to people who know loved ones in abusive relationships, be that lifeline for them.
0: Tanya, thank you so very much.
3: Thank you, for i.
0: That was Tanya Selvaratnam, author and film producer. Her book is Assume Nothing, a story of intimate violence, and it's out now. Now it's time for Sip in the Political Tea, our weekly roundtable that goes through all things politics and the news. This week I'm joined by our body politic contributor Aaron Haynes, editor at Large at the 19th. Welcome Aaron. Thanks for i And we have got a special guest, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Brittany is an educator, writer, organizer, a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics, and she's an MSNBC and NBC News contributor. She's also (laughs) a fellow podcaster. She co-hosted Pod Save the People for three years, and she now hosts this incredible news and justice podcast called Undistracted. You absolutely have to listen. You got a lot of credentials, Brittany. Welcome.
4: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to talk to y'all. All
5: All the jobs, all the hats. Brittany, (laughs) (laughs) let's first of all start by celebrating your
0: most recent interview on Undistracted. The squad is big, y'all. It is the movement that ensured the decisive election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. It is a movement that showed out twice in Georgia.
5: Uh, so, that of course is Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. Brittany, tell us about it and tell us uh, what else is on your mind.
4: I mean, what's not to love about Ayanna Presley? She is incredible and authentic. And, you know, I'm in love with anybody who says policy is their love language um, <laughs> because she understands so clearly that it's not just about warm and fuzzy rhetoric, yeah. but that it is actually about empowering and impactful. Policy and real change. So, I um, absolutely loved interviewing her. You know, we've had folks kind of from all over the spectrum. We've had politicians like her, we've uh, had artists like Tracy Ellis Ross and America Ferreira. But our viewpoint is always to figure out how we build the largest army of undistracted people possible. We borrowed the name of the podcast from uh, Toni Morrison when she talked about the function of racism being to distract you, to keep you from doing your work. So what will it look like and what can we accomplish if we stay focused and keep doing our work? Um, So really, that's what I'm obsessed with all the time. I'm trying to create a world where everybody can thrive, especially the most marginalized, especially Black girls like us. Um, And so I am... I am obsessed with anything that stands in the way of that. I'm obsessed with eradicating it. And I'm obsessed with building the systems and institutions and spaces that allow us to thrive.
5: Well, Brittany, you're absolutely in the right place because our body politic uh, is 100% in favor of every single thing that you were talking about.
4: I know. The good stuff is happening here. (laughs)
5: Exactly. Well, listen, what about you, Farah? What's on your mind?
0: You know, I've been thinking a lot about the relationship of white Americans to this moment in history, meaning right now I really feel like it's a save-your-own-life moment for white America. I don't think a lot of white Americans have realized how much anti-black racism leads to domestic terrorism and leads to declines in the economy. So, uh, you know, for example, in the news industry— there's a lot of threat signaling about the threat of Blackness, but we don't think about the ways in which anti-Blackness is a much bigger and deeper threat. So that's what's on my mind.
5: Well, listen, I got to tell you guys, in terms of what I've been thinking about uh, this week, uh, we hit the unfortunate and very grim and very terrible milestone of of half a million Americans uh, who have perished uh, in the almost year uh, since this pandemic first hit uh, our country. And, you know, while that Um, certainly was a difficult day, I think, for our country. It was a day that was marked by uh, the new president, the new vice president. uh, And we were able to have kind of a moment of collective grief as a nation, which is not something that I think has happened nearly enough to be able to try to grapple with this as a country, to try to get back to kind of that initial idea around this pandemic of the thought that maybe we're all in this together, really felt like a bit of light in in what's hopefully um you know the dark period before things uh really start to get better and we we move to the other side of this yeah uh, absolutely, so yeah, look y'all know I love talking about what what black women's uh political leadership looks like what it can look like uh and so with that, I want to hop over to New york city uh with a mayoral hopeful uh, Maya Wiley who uh you know just had a profile in the cut uh Rebecca tracer uh wrote it and I encourage folks to read it if they haven't seen it i i found it very fascinating and learned a lot uh about her but uh let's listen to this uh clip uh from from this mayoral hopeful.
1: This is our journey, and it would be my great honor to travel that road hand-in-hand with the people of our city as your next mayor. Now, some will say I don't sound like past mayors or look like them or think like them. And I say, yes, I don't. That is the point.
5: So Wiley recently got an endorsement from 1199, the city's biggest union. Farai. How much of a game changer is this for her?
0: It's huge. I mean, I think that um, it it also points out that uh, progressives aren't always what they appear to be. And what I'm referring to there is that the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, has been roundly criticized for any number of things, his handling of the schools in New York, New York is the most segregated city educationally, um, on and on and on. And I think that um, she is someone who's trying to redefine what it means to be a a progressive New York City mayor. She, you know, didn't qualify for public matching funds. So I think that this in particular is important as a validator. There's so many different types of validators in politics. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how things uh, unfold.
5: Yeah, I think you make a really good point about the matching funds because you know, at the nineteenth, we we certainly talk a lot about electability, right? And like what makes somebody electable. And as far as we're concerned, it's electing somebody is what makes them electable. Like that's the criteria, right? But but we know the the kind of barriers and hurdles that that black women, uh, you know, seeking public office in particular, uh can face in terms of fundraising to get that early support to be viable, right? And and we and that that field Of Folks who is looking to be the next mayor of New York is already uh, beginning to get um, to get quite crowded. But, um, you know, it it is remarkable to me to think about in 2021 that that uh, New York City, uh, you know, one of one of the iconic uh, cities of of this country has never had a black woman mayor. You know, maybe uh, she's the one to do it. I don't know. But I'm certainly uh, very interested to to see uh, what happens in that contest. So. Uh, I want to turn now uh, to a topic we've been, you know, we've been talking about here uh, at at Our Body Politic for the past few weeks. uh, And that is obviously the aftermath of the events of of January 6th and the uh, insurrection. So let's talk about the latest. Uh, Authorities are saying that there was a wider conspiracy that led to the storming of the Capitol. Uh, More defendants have been added to the list of those already charged. Uh, Brittany, you talked about the investigations happening about this with Representative Ayanna Presley on your podcast. Let's take a listen
0: this is as much about accountability as it is prevention. Mm. Because Donald J. Trump needed to be not only held accountable, but barred from running for public office ever again. And so we also know that Donald J. Trump is not the only culpable person, that he had many accomplices who aided and abetted in the perpetuating
5: of this big lie Yeah, so Brittany, what do you make of further investigations? Is it going to be enough to do the prevention that Representative Presley talks about?
4: I don't know if it's going to be enough, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary. You know, the past is, is always prologue, and we are living the aftermath of what happened when there was no accountability all the way back to the Civil War. I mean, if Jefferson Davis, of all people, who literally created a seceded set of states to separate themselves from the formerly United States, if somebody like that does not even stand trial for treason, and why, because, you know, people wanted to unify the country. It's a a very familiar rhetoric. Um, If somebody like that can't stand trial for treason, if people like Confederate soldiers are all pardoned, if people like enslavers are uh, pardoned and able to retain their property, including the land that uh, they turned their formerly enslaved people into sharecroppers, on um, that it is impossible not only to hold them accountable but to prevent the romanticizing of the atrocities that they performed. And we are living in the aftermath of that. We are living in the reality and experiencing the cost of that every single day. That is how you can see the Confederate flag reemerge as um, what some people think to be a legitimate symbol of heritage. That's how you see a reemergence in, you know, neo-white supremacy and neo-Nazism. That's how you, uh, you know, are, are able to see the creation. Creation of a Ku Klux Klan and later a Proud Boys, like and and later the election of a of a Donald J. Trump. So we know what it means to not hold folks accountable for their white supremacist fascism and pay for it down the road. And we have the chance right now to decide that that's not what we're going to do, that we're not going to repeat history like that. Um, Unfortunately, the Senate did not do what needed to be done. Republicans in the Senate didn't do what needed to be done. But at the very least, naming the names (laughs) and holding them accountable and naming all of the names and not just some, it has to be the way forward because anything less puts us at even greater risk uh, for a revisiting of the tragedies that we've we've experienced over the last four years. And I want to be really clear, I'm less worried about Donald Trump running for re-election than I am about a kinder, gentler, ready-for-prime-time Donald Trump. ...to run, who may be a person of color, who may be a woman, who may be more palatable for modern audiences, but still holds all of the same dangerous views and, let's be clear, is more effective at turning those dangerous views into policy because they are not as polarizing, because they don't walk around with this month's vitriol. If we can't even hold somebody like Trump accountable, what happens when we've got a friendlier Trump ready to run in 2024?
5: Yeah. Yeah, and and also why it's just so important to to leave behind an honest and accurate record of what happened, not just on January sixth, right? But 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 the climate that led up to January sixth, and the climate that frankly we are still very much in as a country. I want to talk about uh, something that's happening this week in Orlando, and that is uh, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. And, you know, I think, you know, we were wondering as as a you know political press corps, as a country, kind of what Former President Donald Trump's, uh, you know, post-presidency was going to look like. What kind of platforms was he going to to be on now that he, uh, you know, has obviously been deplatformed from from uh, Twitter? Uh, but Donald Trump will be. Uh, he was invited as the main speaker uh, at CPAC, and so Brittany, I'm wondering what you make of of their continued focus on the baseless claim that the 2020 elections were stolen. I mean, the theme of this conference is America Uncancelled, uh, and how should the media be covering this?
4: I mean this is <laughs> this is par for the course. And what I found fascinating is the people who are determined to I think there's a hashtag reclaim the GOP as if they have not always been the party of Make America Great Again, (laughs) Um, as if that was not Ronald Reagan's slogan before it was Donald Trump's slogan. Absolutely. Um, And so I I think it's going to be up to the public and most certainly the media to make sure that these hairs are not falsely split, the, the supposed ceiling of the election, not only reeks of desperation, but it is cover for what is happening in state legislatures all around the country. Yeah. Because now that, you know, your home state of Georgia, Aaron has been, uh, you know, I won't say flipped blue, I will say um, fought to be blue, yeah. state lawmakers, state GOP lawmakers are proposing an unprecedented amount of new voter suppression bills. So they are doing every single thing they can to make sure that their state is not the next Georgia. And in order to do that, they have to create the um, the perception that the election was stolen and therefore all of these state bills are to protect against any further theft of the election. The media should be focusing on the very clear fact that voter fraud is not real, but voter suppression is very real. And if that is not leading all of your coverage of the GOP, if that is not leading all of your coverage of the the midterms, you're doing it wrong.
0: Let me just drop something in, which is we have to also understand that there is an active disinformation campaign to discredit what a multiracial democracy is And we in the media have not done a good job of being a force for good in that sense. And so there would not be the level of widespread discussion about, you know, a putatively stolen election, which was not stolen at all, unless we or at least some of us in the media were complicit.
5: Yeah. And frankly, as somebody who is a Georgia native who has seen folks Arguing for, you know, a need to protect, uh, you know, voter integrity as, as a solution in search of a problem. You know, I think folks who understand the, the racial history of politics in this country are better equipped to talk about that and to talk about what 21st century voter suppression uh, looks like. And, and and it must be called out, uh, just to Brittany's point, each and every time uh, that it is surfacing wherever it is it is doing that. Uh, but listen, we do actually have a, a new administration uh, that has been in an office here for, for a little over a month. And so we should take a moment to talk about the Biden-Harris administration's cabinet nominees, uh, many of them who are people of color uh, that are facing a level of scrutiny that their white male counterparts are not. Uh, Farai, what is this about?
0: Well, it's about business as usual, and um, I, I honestly I don't know why I'm still surprised. I'm surprised by some of the uh, some of the people who are being picked apart. So I, I'm focusing on Representative Deb Holland because I think there's yeah. a bigger story there, a long arc of history. I'm one of those many Americans who learned nothing yeah. about Native Americans in school, and I mean elementary through the end of college at Harvard University. I learned nothing. And the more that I have researched the way that the U.S. government flouted its own treaties and its own regulations, like aside from who owned this land, period, we set, we, and I'm using the American we, which I am, not that I co-sign on everything, but the American we said, you can take this land, we'll take this land, which again, I'm just setting that all aside and then said, oh, just kidding. (laughs) We said you could keep this part of the land, but you can't because we want it now. And that's what is driving the fear Mm -hmm. of Representative Deb Holland. It's like there's this deep fear of revenge, fear that I think that a lot of, you know, policy is driven by this fear of Black revenge for slavery and Native American revenge for genocide. It's like, we just want to live our lives.
4: Right. Brittany, uh, do you have anything to add? What is telling here that uh, that I, I want to tease out more is something that Farai mentioned about the assumed revenge play. I am past the point of believing everyone's surprise when they become in, confronted with just how deep oppression goes. You can watch that old video of Jane Elliot the white educator, asking a room full of white people to raise their hands if they want to be treated like Black people in this country, and nobody puts their hands up. So she's like, you know what's going on. You just don't actually want to do anything about it because it benefits you. And if, if folks know the incredibly oppressive systems and structures that have continued to exist and continue to actively and materially harm the very people who represent communities who are are, are now uh, going up for these cabinet positions, then they're absolutely, um, consciously and subconsciously, going to be worried that suddenly policymakers are going to be in positions of power um, and they're going to make policy that doesn't include them.
5: Phew! time flies when you're sipping the tea. We're going to have to wrap it up here, (laughs) ladies. But thank you so much for joining us this week, Brittany.
4: Thank you for having me. It's always good to chat with you all. And I'm so grateful for the way that you all keep shining the light of truth.
5: Well, keep it up over there at Undistracted, too. Uh, It was nice to chat with you, as
0: always, Farai. Oh, it was great. I think the three of us should run for (laughs) co-president. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Erin. All right, take care, y'all. That was Erin Haynes, editor-at-large at at the 19th, and also our special guest, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, who is all the things. She is an MSNBC and NBC News contributor and runs the incredible podcast you must check out, Undistracted. (laughs) Undistracted. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mix this episode. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Julie Zahn is our talent consultant. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt and Sarah McClure.
5: Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.